0: I would now like to introduce your host for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Well, thank you very much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, treatment update on pancreas cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between um Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. Um and um and as well as uh as pan- as well as organizations that a focus on pancreatic cancer. Um, so we have the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network um, on this call. We have the Garden Foundation. Um, and we also have the Hirschberg Foundation for Pancreatic Cancer Research. So, um, And because of that collaboration, and also because of your interest in the program today, we have um, over on the program today over 347 participants on the call today. So you come from all of the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada India, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. And from the United States, you come from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. So this is a bit of a, it's both a national call here in the United States, and we also have a, a number of countries participating um, as well. Um, and today's program is supported by AbbVie, the Selgene Corporation, and the Dianapoli Fund, and I really want to thank them for their support to this program today. And we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Eileen O'Reilly, and Dr. O'Reilly is the Winthrop Rockefeller Chair in Medical Oncology, Section Head Hepatopancreatic Biliary Neuroendocrine Cancers, Gastrointestinal Oncology Service. She's also Associate Director of the David M. Rubenstein Center for Pancreatic Cancer, attending physician, member of Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center, and Professor of Medicine while at Cornell Medical College. And Doctor O'Reilly will be addressing an overview of pancreatic cancer, uh, current standard of care, new and emerging treatment approaches, and clinical trial updates. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Doctor O'Reilly. Great. Carolyn, thank you so much. Uh, good afternoon,
2: everybody. Greetings from uh, the East Coast here in New York City. Uh, it's a it's a pleasure to have the next 15 uh, minutes or so just to discuss what's happening in pancreas cancer. So, just to set the scene, just going to uh, walk you through a little bit of background about this disease, where we are with the epidemiology, what's happening with regard to genetics, risk factors discuss a little bit about the staging of pancreas cancer and then how it's approached from the treatment perspective, uh, thinking about early-stage disease and thinking about individuals that are diagnosed with inoperable uh, pancreas cancer. So just going back to the epidemiology, this this disease has an incidence which has been slowly but steadily increasing over the last few decades, and part of that is, is thought to be that we're all Getting older, and in particular the expansion of the the baby boomer uh, population, but there are also some trends in in pancreas cancer that suggest uh, that younger people may be at uh, slightly increased risk of this disease. Not fully understood why, but obviously a big a big focus uh, for for now and for the future risk factors have been defined for pancreas cancer. Uh, again, being older is, is a key one. The average age at diagnosis in North America is, is about 71. Uh, smoking is uh, very clearly linked to pancreas cancer. We know it accounts for about a quarter of the incidence of the disease, but certainly doesn't explain why everybody gets gets pancreas cancer. And then there, there are considerations in terms of lifestyle, so obesity, a high body mass index. Dietary considerations, lack of physical activity, and uh, diabetes uh, have all got associations with this disease, and some of these lifestyle considerations may be part of the explanation in terms of why we're seeing uh, trends in, in, in younger uh, individuals. So thinking just about this cancer in, in general, there are some a number of sort of unique uh, factors uh, related to, to pancreas cancer. For many uh, people, when the cancer is diagnosed, it will have spread beyond the local area, so about 80 to 85 percent of people at the time of diagnosis won't be candidates uh, for surgery, and they'll either have tumors which uh, involve key blood vessels uh, that render the cancer not operable, uh, certainly initially for a proportion, or about half of everybody's diagnosed will have metastatic disease or spread of the cancer with uh, typical areas including the liver, uh, lungs, inner lining of the abdominal cavity, that's the peritoneum, uh, lymph nodes, and then more rarely uh, the bones. And treatment is uh, delineated based on the, the stage or the disease extent uh, at diagnosis. So just going back to the, the, the risk factors for pancreas cancer, it's been increasingly recognized over the last decade that about 10%, maybe 12 to 15%, depending on how you you characterize this, of people who develop this disease will have a genetic uh, context to the the cancer, uh, meaning that there are uh, mutations or changes in the DNA that happen that predispose to the development of, of cancer. And so examples of this would include uh, changes in the BRCA genes, uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2, which are associated with breast, ovary, and prostate cancer, but also very clearly associated uh, with pancreas cancer, and that's important in terms of risk identification for uh, related family members, but it's also, uh, as we'll come back to in a couple of minutes, increasingly important with regard to treatment opportunities uh, for for this cancer. Um, A more... Uh, rare context in, in terms of uh, which this cancer can develop is uh, if uh, an individual or family has Lynch syndrome, which is again changes in certain uh, DNA uh, genes that are involved in repairing DNA damage. And uh, pancreas cancer uh, there is is not common, but it may be uh, a setting where the cancer is more responsive to immune therapy. So. Again, it's something we're increasingly looking at is for people who are diagnosed with this cancer want to understand whether there's uh, any genetic predisposition for the individual and for the family, and that's done by what's called germline uh, testing. And also, increasingly, we recommend uh, tumor-based testing that's called somatic testing, looking at the genes that are changed in the tumor, not genes that are inherited in the blood uh, to family members but exclusive to the tumor itself, and both can have potential uh, applications in, in terms of uh, treatment. And, again, this is uh, kind of key in changing. So a common question comes up is, can we screen for this disease, and if so, who should we screen, when should we screen, how frequently, and what might that look like? And just in general, there isn't routine screening uh, for an individual who's not deemed to be at higher risk for this disease, but in certain select settings, so for example, in families where there may be uh, more than one individual with this disease or where, where one of these genes has been identified uh their uh settings or individuals that we do uh, consider screening usually in the context of uh registry uh, enrollment so uh, people can be followed and uh, there can be concrete learnings uh, from this and typically can include uh, imaging which is often MRI and sometimes an endoscopic ultrasound looking more directly at the pancreas uh so those those apply to select individuals and not routinely recommended for the wider population just because the overall uh, incidence of this disease in general terms is is low, Uh, but in selected individuals uh, that that may be uh, an important consideration. So moving then to uh, the setting of a treatment uh, for this disease. So if we take initially the group of uh, individuals that have localized or operable pancreas cancer. A traditional approach is to go ahead and proceed with surgery and then administer postoperative chemotherapy that's called adjuvant uh, treatment and designed to eliminate any microscopic cells to uh, try to prevent recurrence or to delay uh, recurrence. And in the last uh, year or so, we've had uh, new information with regard to what constitutes the optimal treatment, certainly for fitter individuals. And in that setting, we now will use a combination of drugs called fulfirinox, which is uh, a three-drug component and one vitamin. Uh, That's a combination that's been well-established in the treatment of metastatic pancreas cancer uh, but recently had validation in this post-operative setting, although increasingly there is discussion of administering preoperative treatment we call that neoadjuvant as opposed to adjuvant with the goals of early delivery of chemotherapy to try to uh, to get at any microscopic cells that imaging can show and to try and uh, facilitate what we call downstaging or to uh, improve the tumor blood vessel relationship and to try and get a clean removal of the primary cancer which can be often that blood vessel tumor interface can be a particularly challenging issue from the surgical perspective. So there are a number of trials both in the U.S. and uh, Europe and and other parts of the world that are examining the role of preoperative therapy, and a couple of studies uh, about to compare preoperative treatment followed by surgery versus surgery first, and then postoperative treatment to understand uh which might be the, the better approach and there may not clearly be a better approach but for some particular settings uh it may be better to administer uh chemotherapy early and, and I would say there's been a strong move in that direction uh in North America over the last five years or so. So very very topical area and, and something that we discuss a lot. One of the kind of key things as oncologists and physicians looking and medical professionals looking after people with pancreas cancer is we like to ensure that there is multidisciplinary engagement in terms of defining what's the best plan of care. And that's particularly true when the cancer is, is localized because it involves expertise from surgical oncologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, radiologists, and our gastroenterology colli- colleagues, the latter often uh, helping facilitate uh, the diagnosis and obtain tissue uh, for confirmation of the diagnosis and also for uh, increasingly these days for genetic analysis. So in the setting of disease where it isn't possible to remove the cancer initially, uh, in, in that setting we typically will treat with uh, combination chemotherapy, example being again, fulfirinox or an alternative combination, uh, gemcitabine and nab-paclitaxel, that's also well-established in in treating metastatic disease, and typically also consider the use of radiation uh, to try and help uh, downstage the cancer and to to try and, again, facilitate uh, the ability to do an optimal surgery, which means doing a clean removal of the cancer and not leaving any residual disease against the blood vessels uh, behind. With regard to metastatic disease, uh, the uh, main approach is what we call systemic therapy. So, traditionally, that's chemotherapy, but increasingly for subsets of individuals diagnosed with this disease, uh, targeted uh, treatments. So, the, the mainstay uh, from metastatic uh, disease treatments include Fofirinox again, and gemcitabine and nab And a common question uh, that comes up is, which is, is the better approach. And right now there isn't uh, direct data that compares one to the other, but there are certainly settings where one approach either from a, a patient preference uh, perspective or from a side effect uh, perspective uh, may be preferable. So to give an example of that, uh, full requires the placement of, of a port, so a central uh, venous access device in the chest. And it requires receiving treatment as an infusion uh, that's given over a couple of days at home. And in contrast, the other regimen uh, induces fairly significant hair loss for most people. And you can see that one or both could be points of uh, preference uh, for a given individual. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, thought goes into trying to match uh, the best therapy uh, for a given patient based on. Uh, lifestyle issues uh, based on how well the individual is, what their level of functioning is, what their level of nutrition is, and Dr. Schroff will speak to these topics uh, which are key uh, in a few minutes. So moving to just where the the field is going and and sort of what's new in, in the treatment of pancreas cancer, there are a number of drugs that are in the later stages of development and in fact Some have completed uh, late phase clinical trials and we're waiting to see the results uh, mature out. An example uh, there would be a a drug called uh, uh, PEG-PH20, which is an enzyme or or a protein uh, source that's traditionally been given into joints uh, for many years, but it was then uh, repurposed as an oncology drug and has been shown to help improve the delivery of chemotherapeutic agents directly into the tumor. This is this sort of whole context of the stroma and the environment in which pancreas cancer cells sit uh, that may make getting the drugs there more difficult. So this has been combined with standard treatment. A large study has been done, and we hopefully will have information on that uh, later later this year that could inform uh, possible new treatment strategies uh, for, for this disease. Another very important area is going back to the genetics of pancreas cancer, and at our major oncology meeting about four weeks ago now, we had uh, these data presented looking at a class of drugs called PARP inhibitors. Uh, These are drugs that are oral uh, that have um, benefits in the setting of pancreas uh, cancer where it's uh, developed in the context of a, a, a BRCA mutation and we have we've known for quite a while that this is going to be a, a promising strategy in this disease based on parallel work in in the setting of breast and ovary and, and and prostate cancer which you know are a little bit more common in in terms of their overall occurrence and in terms of the the frequency of uh, BRCA uh, mutations uh, but the nice thing about this is that for people who are benefiting from their initial treatment and their cancer is under good control, uh, it certainly looks like uh, using a PARP inhibitor will act as a maintenance strategy, so an ability to take away the chemotherapy part and continue uh, an oral medication, which is, I, I think, very attractive uh, to, to the community at large in terms of uh, having a little bit more flexibility in life and lower levels of toxicity, and maintaining disease control. These drugs, uh, of course, don't work for everybody, and and there's a lot of work underway to try to expand the population that might benefit from this by combining PARP inhibitors with other medications or combining with with chemotherapy Uh, that may be doable in some contexts, and See if this can apply to to people with other genetic mutations or even without uh, a, a mutation that's that's still uh, very active areas of research and i wouldn't say that's standard of care yet but we're we're hoping uh that uh, uh, this drug alapro will become part of uh, a standard array of medications for people who have a, a, a germline uh, BRCA mutation, uh, hopefully within this calendar year. And, again, more uh, to come on that. So I know it's it's we uh close to the 15 minutes here, and uh, just uh, we'll, we'll sum up by saying, and I haven't done justice to this, but there's—it's very exciting times in, in in the in the setting of pancreas cancer. Having worked in this field for a while, to see the the interest, the number of researchers really focused uh, on this disease, the increased funding. And uh, the enthusiasm in terms of the community in general to, to want to make changes that are, are, are meaningful uh, for people diagnosed with this disease. And I'm sure we'll come back to this in, in, in the question-and-answer setting Uh as we haven't touched on it here, but another common question is where immune therapy fits. And I would say just the short answer is it's not a standard, but there's a lot of work uh, sort of focused on trying to see if we can make pancreas cancer an uh, immune-responsive disease. So so thank you. I'll I'll stop there and uh, pass it back
1: to, to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Reilly. That was really superb and just a wonderful setting the stage for the program, but lots of information as well. So more than just setting the stage, but giving people all this information and um, and also a lot of um, information that's new. So um, that's that's also very I think gratifying for people on the call. So thank you. And I, there will be questions definitely during the Q and A. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Rashna Shroff, and Dr. Shroff is Chief Section of GI Medical Oncology, Associate Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology, University of Arizona Cancer Center in Tucson, Arizona. And Dr. Shroff is going to be addressing practical tips to manage discomfort, symptoms, side effects, and pain, the role of the pain management and palliative care team in managing discomfort and pain, coping with weight loss and eating hints. And talking with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shroff.
3: Thank you very much, Carolyn, and thank you all for participating today and for giving us the opportunity to speak with you. Um, as Carolyn mentioned, I'm delighted to kind of speak in conjunction with Dr. O'Reilly, who always gives a fantastic and comprehensive overview of therapeutic options for pancre- pancreas cancer, but as I'm sure a lot of people on this call understand, there are a number of things related to management of symptoms and quality of life and palliation of symptoms that really is part and parcel of how we approach our care for pancreas cancer. And so uh, I applaud cancer care for kind of giving time to that topic. Uh, so just as Carolyn mentioned, I'm going to start a little bit with symptoms and and. Uh, what, what we look for and, and how we approach those things. And, and what I will say is that, as Dr. O'Reilly mentioned, uh, unfortunately, the majority of patients with pancreas cancer present at an advanced stage. And I think it's part of that is really related to the fact that there are not clear and specific symptoms that make you say, oh, my gosh, this could be pancreas cancer. And so oftentimes, uh, by the time there are symptoms, patients have uh, more advanced disease uh, in which which things like options such as surgery, as, as uh, Dr. O'Reilly mentioned, perhaps are not on the table. Uh, but, but that being said, there are symptoms that definitely uh, consistently are issues with our patients with pancreas cancer, and a lot of those symptoms are oftentimes related to where the tumor is located within the pancreas. And I And I typically describe the pancreas as like a fish that's got a head, a body, and a tail. Um, So when tumors present in the head of the pancreas, that is the location in the pancreas in which the main bile duct that drains our entire liver runs. And so those are the patients that very commonly present with jaundice, where where their skin and eyes turn yellow. And that is, you know, a telltale sign usually leads somebody to go seek medical uh, medical care, and oftentimes those patients are managed by a GI doctor who goes in with an endoscopy and places a stent into that main bile duct to relieve that blockage that comes from the tumor and allow the bile to flow freely from the liver and improve that jaundice. Uh, that management of that stent is kind of an ongoing process typically in our patients with pancreas cancer. Uh, we typically recommend placement of a metal stent, as those are stents that have a tendency to be a little bit more durable. Uh, they don't require frequent exchanges and frequent procedures, and they don't get uh, clogged up, I guess, as easily uh, when we when we are actively treating our patients. So jaundice is kind of an easy one or a common one that we think of, but Oftentimes, when the tumor is not in the head of the pancreas, the symptoms are a little bit more vague, and those symptoms typically involve things like pain, um, weight loss, fatigue, uh, and then changes in bowel habits uh, and symptoms that we put together as a description of what we call pancreatic insufficiency, which I'll come back to in just a minute. Uh, and those symptoms, like I said, are not necessarily, uh, I mean, they are potentially red flag symptoms, but not symptoms that make us think about pancreatic cancer as a whole. But they are really important to try to actively manage because these are patients who oftentimes their performance status, as we oncologists describe them, are kind of their their fitness, their level of ability to do things, their to, to dress themselves and bathe themselves and go get Groceries and do simple errands, those things are really affected by those symptoms, and so trying to kind of actively manage those symptoms is really important right from the time of of diagnosis um, in terms of uh, how we approach therapy you know when we're when we're dealing with advanced pancreas cancer, we often describe the treatment as The goal being to not only prolong your life as much as possible, but to also improve quality of life. And so um, quality of life is really at the forefront of our minds as oncologists and obviously as patients and caregivers. And so addressing quality of life issues right from the get-go in terms of acting on symptom control and, and managing quality of life both from toxicities from therapy as well as from the cancer is really important. And that really does involve multidisciplinary management. Uh, And so, as I mentioned, for instance, when somebody presents with jaundice, GI, gastroenterologists get involved pretty quickly. Uh, And then we also work really elbow to elbow with uh, supportive care or palliative care physicians who really have extra expertise in how to manage uh, symptoms such as pain management and and help with weight loss and and, uh, other bowel habits and symptoms that come from even the, the treatments that we're giving. And I would say also nowadays there's a, a huge emphasis being placed on integrative medicine approaches, and you know a lot of major cancer centers now have integrative oncology programs because a lot of a lot of patients you know there's only so many pills patients want to take, and there are other approaches that we can use to try to improve things such as pain and. Uh, 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 neuropathy and some other side effects that come from therapy. So uh, massage therapy, acupuncture, these are all kind of integrative approaches that uh, work hand-in-hand with our supportive care teams and the medical oncology teams. Um Going back to jaundice, you know jaundice is obviously and it is something that we like to act on quickly um as you can as you can imagine when you have a blockage in your in the bile that 's draining from your liver well that that can absolutely make somebody feel quite sick very quickly and I always describe that kind of pooling of bile as a petri dish for bacteria it's a it's a It's a common way that people get sick very quickly with sepsis and bad infections, Uh, and so getting moving on getting that that uh, blockage drained is really quite important. Uh, And then the other thing that I always mention to patients when it comes to how we approach symptoms is to keep in mind that chemotherapy. Once we start chemotherapy. The goal is to improve quality of life, and a lot of these chemotherapies actually we have demonstrated that not only do tumors shrink more in response to these t- chemotherapies and patients live longer, but patients also derive what we call a clinical benefit. Uh, and in fact, one of the oldest drugs that we've used for pancreas cancer, gemcitabine, as Dr. O'Reilly mentioned, uh, the initial study that looked at gemcitabine in pancreatic cancer actually was designed to look at what we call a clinical benefit response so an improvement in pain and uh, performance status and weight loss and things like that and and these drugs all demonstrate that and so trying to get therapy started quickly gives our patients a chance to hopefully feel better quickly as well so moving on to pain management and and, uh, and palliative care so this is obviously a very difficult part of our clinical care and you know, in this era of opioid addiction and opioid crises, I, I try to reinforce to my patients that w- we do not need to worry about them becoming addicted to these to the pain medication and such because pain is really a, a big part of of, pa- of patients with pancreas cancer in their journey, and trying to make sure that we manage and palliate that is really important. So, as I mentioned, we really try to get uh, supportive care or a pain management team involved to help us. um you know we as medical oncologists absolutely can prescribe pain medicine and and we try to do so uh but i I really like to work hand in hand with them uh, because they really are are quite good at titrating these medications and understanding that if one type of pain medication is not tolerated by the patient, what additional options there may be um and really that is our first step in terms of pain management, is oral uh, narcotic pain medication. Um, and those often, there's multiple different types of classes, and they come in oral form. They come There's some that are trans, transdermal patches, so patches that we apply to the skin. Um, there are liquid forms for people that have a hard time swallowing. So there are a lot of different approaches using narcotic pain medicine that we try first to try to help manage pain. Uh, but then in addition, there are other kind of more procedural approaches in terms of uh, pain management that, again, a pain management specialist can absolutely help with and make suggestions for. Um, and so as we, as I mentioned, where the tumor is in the pancreas often determines symptoms. And when you have a pancreas lesion that's more in the middle part of the pancreas, the body of the pancreas, for instance, well, that's right really where a whole network of nerves, uh, the celiac plexus, runs. And so that network of nerves is really what gets triggered and causes pretty significant amounts of pain for these patients. And so there are procedures that involve um, what's called a celiac plexus block, where uh, a procedure is done to basically deaden or kind of turn off that that stimulation and signaling of of the celiac nerves and that can either be done with uh, a pain management doctor or there are GI doctors that can do that endoscopically so there's a couple of different approaches but uh these types of pain blocks are absolutely an option when and if we feel the oral narcotic pain medicines are not providing enough uh pain control uh there's also other palliative procedures so sometimes for instance well When patients have um, advanced or metastatic disease, so spread of the pancreas cancer to other organs, uh, while we typically use chemotherapy as the primary treatment, uh, there are rare cases uh, where, for instance, if patients have uh, metastases or spread of the pancreas cancer to the bone, for instance, these, these can be quite painful areas. And so in those situations, we can sometimes ask our radiation doctors to help us and to give kind of short courses of radiation that help that aren't necessarily intended to treat the cancer as much as it is to kind of decrease inflammation and hopefully help with the with the pain that is coming from that one specific site. So those are different types of approaches that we use for specific areas that are that are causing pain. The other thing that I always uh, reinforce to my to my patients is that once we do start patients on oral uh, narcotic pain medication, I, I usually always start them on a, a pretty aggressive bowel regimen in terms of uh, medicines to help prevent constipation because it, it is a very bad, vicious cycle when you get... When you have pain, you take pain medication, and then you get constipated from that pain medication because that constipation causes pain and nausea. So trying to be proactive and having people on medicines to keep their bowels nice and soft and regular is really important so that we don't necessarily run into trying uh, trying to catch up, I guess, as opposed to being preemptive. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, you know, I always tell patients that when we start chemotherapy and we see an improvement in pain, for so perhaps they're requiring less oral pain medicine or something like that, that is oftentimes, to a medical oncologist, a really good sign of a potential response to the therapy that they're on. And so that's what we expect to see is that patients' pain improves once we start some sort of treatment that's being effective. In terms of weight loss, uh, that is obviously a, a big uh, concern and issue for our patients and their caregivers, and I was I was joking with Carolyn uh, earlier that you know one of the most important people in that in the management of this is our dietitians, and so you know most cancer centers have a multidisciplinary team that involves not only supportive care and um, GI doctors and and pain management doctors, but also our dietitians because we really rely on them. They have a vast amount of knowledge in terms of how we can approach weight loss and, and tips and suggestions for eating. Uh, but they, uh, th- some of the things that they always discuss with our patients uh, include the, the focus on protein and calories. So I always tell my patients, you know, a lot of our patients complain of what we call early satiety, where they feel full very fast and they feel like they cannot eat a lot in one sitting. Um, and so the recommendations are that we typically give are, you know, to eat multiple small meals uh, as opposed to three square meals. I always tell my patients that, you know, every hour try to put something in your mouth, but that doesn't need to be more than a handful of nuts, but, you know, something that basically allows them to eat slowly and steadily over the course of the day. And when they do that, our dietitians always recommend to focus on protein and calories. Um, pancreas cancer is known to kind of break down your muscle mass, and so, ha- get, you know, putting in more protein and, and calories is really the way to at least to keep your weight stable, which is really our goal. You know, it's hard to... Gain back weight, oftentimes, um, especially when you've lost a fair, when someone has lost a fair amount prior to their diagnosis. But at least stabilizing that weight loss and keeping their weight stable is really is really goal number one. And, and protein and calories is what helps with that. Uh, we absolutely encourage um, supplements, you know, such as Ensure uh, and Boost and those types of things. There are some patients that say, "Oh, I really." can't tolerate that or I don't like the taste of that, and that's fine. But there are a a myriad, a number of different varieties out there now, so I always encourage them, well, if you didn't like Boost, try Ensure and, you know, that sort of thing, because, again, those are typically pretty calorie-rich. And then the other big thing that really comes into play with – uh, weight loss management is pancreatic insufficiency. So, pan- the pancreas we know produces a number of hormones and enzymes. You know, insulin is one thing that everybody knows about, but not as well known is that the pancreas produces a number of digestive enzymes those are enzymes that are made in the pancreas and then basically travel down the main duct of the pancreas and meet up in the small intestine with the food that that you have eaten as it's leaving your stomach and entering your intestine. And there those digestive enzymes go to work and they digest up all the food that you've eaten, kind of chomp it up, extract the necessary nutrition out of it and process it so it can work its way through your bowel and out through your stool. Well, when you have a mass in your pancreas, as you can imagine, those enzymes are not necessarily getting to where they need to go. And so oftentimes that food that people eat kind of sits there and they complain of gas and bloating and belching. Occasionally they have foul-smelling stool or very loose, frequent, urgent stool um, Greasy stool; um, these are these are signs of pancreatic insufficiency. And so, uh, usually, when patients are diagnosed, you know, their their medical team kind of recognizes that early on. And there are, are thankfully now a number of prescription um, replacement enzymes, so pancreatic uh, digestive enzymes, replacement enzymes that you can take, and that is really important um, if those are the symptoms that the patients are presenting with. Those are That's a really important medicine to start. And I tell my patients, you know, most of my patients who start on these digestive enzymes are able to, uh, and, and take them regularly, uh, are able to feel a marked improvement in a number of the symptoms um, that I just described. And, when people are losing weight from pancreas insufficiency because they're not necessarily holding on to the nutrition that they're eating and they start these digestive enzymes, uh, they are able to actually start to see stabilization of their weight and improvement in their weight. So that is really an important part. And, again, a dietitian is very helpful in helping to understand how to take those medicines, how to titrate them to what you're eating because that's an important part of it. And then just quickly, the last kind of important thing to touch on is, is talking about... Um, your quality of life and wishes with your healthcare team. And, you know, what I always try to encourage my patients to do is to make it clear to us, uh, to the healthcare team, right from the beginning what, what their wishes are, what are their goals, what, um, you know, if if the treatment we are offering is, uh, not a curative treatment and, and the goal is to prolong life and give quality. What does quality of life mean to that patient? And having that conversation right from the get-go so that we can make sure that we are, just like Dr. O'Reilly mentioned, we have a couple different chemo cocktail options for newly diagnosed patients and how we choose choose those cocktails are really dependent on the patient telling us what what is important to them. Um, what you know do they do they want to deal with a pump do they want the ability to do, are they worried about losing sensation in their fingertips because they're a, a concert pianist these are the types of conversations that we really encourage you to have right from the beginning so that we know what your primary goals are as well as milestones you know I have a lot of patients who will come to me and say you know my, my daughter is is pregnant and I want to meet my grandbaby I and mean, those are important milestones for that healthcare team to know so that we can make sure that we we do our best to to get you to those goals, and those goals and wishes may change, and so having that communication open and and going back and forth with your healthcare team regularly is really important. Um, and then part of that, of course, is you know like I mentioned, toxicities from chemotherapy, and what is important to you to preserve, and what do you not want to deal with? Do you want to come in every week for infusion? Would you rather every two weeks? Um, do you have trips that you want to take? Are there holidays that you want to take? And, you know, do you need a break from chemo? And if you're a BRCA-mutated person, have a, have a BRCA mutation, you know, would a maintenance uh, oral drug be easier for you? Those are important conversations for us to have so that we can make sure that we are are, are listening to what you want and what your goals are. And part and parcel of that and, most, and very important are the advanced directives and having uh, a conversation with your healthcare team about what what you you and your family have discussed who is your medical power of attorney do you have uh, thoughts on do not resuscitate and do not intubate these are important conversations for us to know and again while we recognize that those things evolve over the course of a pancreas cancer journey having that conversation and that communication happening back and forth is really important so, I know that was a a whirlwind on a number of different topics, but again, i look forward to any questions and I will turn it back over to Carolyn. Thank you for your attention
1: Oh, thank you so much. That was really um excellent and um really just a wonderful overview of things that really are are of concern to people and really can enhance the quality of life and and really um i think it's just i know there'll be questions to you during the q and a excellent um, we are going to take questions and some of the questions are coming in already, but before we take questions I just want to say a few words about cancer care services and then we're gonna move right on to um actually um to your questions. So um and, and and Norma will tell you all how to how to ask questions in just a minute. Um so Cancer Care is a national organization and provides free uh Uh, services to people living with um, all types of cancers, including pancreatic cancer, of course, and and blood cancers as well. And we have a staff of, a large staff of oncology, social workers, master's level trained, and they're here to take do a host of things for you. Um, And many of you contact us through our Hopeline or through our website. Um, And um, so we offer practical and financial assistance. We do also offer a chance for you to talk with one of our oncology social workers about your concerns or questions or um issues that might be of, of you're confronting that you'd like some help with um how to talk to your children how to talk to what to do about work um how to talk do, do you tell your friends how do you tell them um how to deal with it yourself so all kinds of questions that come up of course for everybody um, dealing with, um, with with pancreatic cancer, um, the questions that you have in your mind that you'd like to have someone to listen to and talk to you about them. We also offer support groups, both on the telephone and online. So those groups make it easy for you to, to, act, to attend a support group just because these support groups um, are actually, um, you don't have to travel to them. And they're 24 hours, a, well, the well, online groups are 24 hours a day. The telephone groups do meet at a specific time. Um, but again the for many of you who live in very uh, really long distances away from medical centers and even those who live in urban areas it still still takes time to get places and and, and getting dressed and all that kind of stuff to get there. So many people do prefer both the telephone and online support groups um, at the moment. We have one hundred and thirty eight online support groups we have online groups for people with pancreatic cancer we have on- online support groups for caregivers. Um, for young adults, um, for middle-aged adults, for older adults, um, and um, and for all different relationships um, to people living with um, with uh, cancer, so um, family members, spouses, partners, friends, um, coworkers. So groups for different different people that might be really uh, impacted by this. And we do offer these education workshops as well, and we have a number of publications. So with that all being said, um, there's kind of a thumbnail sketch of some of the things that we have to offer you, and they're all free. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask um, Norma to explain to you how to cure for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Norma?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Our first question comes from Stephanie S. Your line is open. Yes, hello there. Um I know there are prodromal signs and symptoms for uh, ovarian cancer sometimes up to 6 months prior to diagnosis.
3: Are there any signs
0: and symptoms for pancreatic
1: cancer besides jaundice, please? Well, I think that's an excellent question. Dr. O'Reilly, do you want to start with that question? Uh, Certainly, yes. Indeed, it is a very good question.
2: And you're absolutely right. Uh, A lot of individuals who are ultimately diagnosed with this disease in retrospect have had uh, symptoms that sometimes are present for three months, Sometimes even six months, occasionally even longer, and they can be quite varied, and that's part of the challenge. That the the symptoms themselves wouldn't necessarily speak to uh, an underlying diagnosis of of this disease, and that's that's uh, part part of uh, of the problem here in terms of later presentation. So, example of common symptoms would include a decrease in appetite, sometimes a decrease in energy level. A very common one that we'll hear is back pain, and a lot of people will end up having been investigated for uh, spine disease or age-related changes in, in their bones, and uh, at some later time point then be identified to, to have pancreas cancer. And just to to emphasize here that the vast majority of people with back pain, of course, don't have pancreas cancer. But it is something that we have to think about in context. Progressive uh, discomfort in that area is, is something that's on our radar. Another uh, potentially not quite early warning sign, but a heads up that something might be lurking, is people who are diabetic and develop a change in their blood glucose level, uh, where their blood glucose, after being, for example, well-controlled for, for many years, may suddenly be elevated HbA1c, which is a blood test marker of blood sugar control over a three-month period of time, can start to increase, and this can happen a year, to sometimes even three years in advance of the diagnosis, and it's not to imply here that that diabetes is causing the cancer, but there are complex uh, interassociations between the cancer and diabetic control uh, that uh, can uh, be sort of a prodromal factor in this. And we do see that the symptoms from tail tumors, so that's tumors that arise in the left side of the pancreas, tend to be a little bit, um, those cancers tend to be a little bit later in their diagnosis compared to uh, what what the caller was pointing out is jaundice, which is a very common symptom, and that's when tumors involve the head of the pancreas and block the bile duct like Dr. Schaff was talking about a few minutes ago. That sometimes will bring people to their... A physician and for medical evaluation uh, a bit quicker. So uh, it can it can be, for want of a better term, sort of sneaky in terms of these range of symptoms that can go on for a
3: while.
1: Here. Thank you. Dr. Schroff, did you want to add anything? Or?
3: Uh, no, I, th- I think that summarizes it quite well, actually.
1: Excellent. Okay, thank you. Excellent. Very comprehensive. Um, and a question for now, Dr. Schroff, from one of our online pr- participants. Um what are the options when the pancreatic cancer cannot be surgically removed, given that the tumor is over vital veins, arteries, and it can impact other organs if removed? Could you comment on that in a general way?
3: Sure. So presumably we're talking about something that is, Localized to the pancreas, but is uh has grown like like mentioned around some vital arteries and or veins that prevented from being surgically uh removed um so that's what we call a locally advanced pancreas cancer um and as dr. O'reilly mentioned, you know we it's, given that surgery is really the only curative therapy that we, we have to date, uh, every single patient with localized disease, you know, depending on how they present, uh, the goal is to see if we can get them to the operating room. Uh, additionally, we know that these tumors, the pancreas tumors, like to, to try to spread to other organs if given a chance. And so really this the the primary approach in the beginning is chemotherapy because chemotherapy treats the disease that it, we already know is there in the pancreas, and then in case there are any microscopic cells of cancer that are trying to move somewhere else, hopefully it prevents that spread from to from spreading to other organs. Um, and that chemotherapy choice, as Dr. Riley mentioned, I mean, there are two standard-of-care chemotherapy uh, combinations. One is the fulferinox, the three-drug regimen, and one is gemcitabine and the two-drug regimen. Um, in terms of what else there is to do, uh, well, first of all, you know, for patients who are eligible, clinical trials. There are a number of clinical trials that are ongoing for uh, locally advanced uh, pancreas cancer uh, that include some of sometimes uh, the chemo backbone that I just mentioned plus novel drugs um there are newer t- uh technologies there's a there's a new drug uh, there's a new uh modality being looked at that are called tumor treating fields which is a combination of giving chemotherapy with uh a kind of a localized direct uh ad- device essentially that you wear on your body and basically Interrupts rapidly dividing cells, uh, targeting the pancreas in particular. Um, so there are trials such as that that are ongoing. Um, but then, in addition, there has always been a, a question about the role of radiation, given that this is a localized tumor to the pancreas, and whether or not uh, doing uh, external beam radiation or um, there's things such as called stereotactic body radiation therapy, uh, where you, after chemotherapy, if this remains confined to the pancreas, we sometimes offer that as an option to patients. Um, There are studies that have looked at radiation after chemotherapy, and while there does not seem to be an improvement in survival, there does seem to be improved control of the tumor at the level of the pancreas. And sometimes patients after radiation are given a break off of therapy or put on kind of an oral chemotherapy or different types of options, which gives them a nice change of pace. And so those are conversations that we have with the patients that we can offer after upfront chemotherapy.
1: Thank you. Um, and Dr. O'Reilly, do you want to add anything? Or?
2: No, I, I think that's uh, that's an excellent summary of uh,
1: you know the various uh, approaches. Excellent, thank you. <laughs> and we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, and this question is: At night is when I feel the most pain, especially when I'm trying when I'm lying down in bed. I can't stay in one position for too long because of the pain what are options for me to sleep fully and lower the pain at night? Dr. O'Reilly, could you address that?
2: Yes, I'm sorry to hear that. That's often a troubling symptom in pancreas cancer and going back to that uh, sort of presentation of this disease. And and the reason we believe that that pain can happen is the tumor sits on this important intersection of nerves and blood vessels, and uh, the the tumor has a propensity to sort of... uh, ingratiate itself along the nerves and uh, particularly in in the back and sometimes in the mid-abdomen So so ways to to try to address that, uh, and Dr. Schaaf mentioned this, and I would emphasize this, is is treating the underlying cancer, and certainly at the very beginning in terms of initial diagnosis, I think that's something that's extraordinarily gratifying for for us to see uh, as individuals looking after uh, people with this cancer, and I think for for patients themselves to feel that the pain starts to get better because of the, the impact of the treatment. But strategies that are adjunctive to that include, you know, sort of stepwise approach in terms of medication. So for example, uh using something like an anti-inflammatory medication or uh paracetamol or, or talanol would be initial. They often are not sufficient uh when this pain can be intense. And then we would think about uh using narcotics, uh both a, a short acting uh opioid drug and often a long acting one to, to complement it. And then, very specifically, there are a number of interventive approaches. And, and again, Dr. Schaff uh, sort of alluded to this: is uh, something called a, a nerve block, uh, which can be very helpful for that sort of localized, penetrating uh, back or um, mid-abdominal pain, uh, where some alcohol or local anesthetic is directly uh, delivered to the nerve roots. That that can be done either via endoscopy. So, having uh, an upper uh, approach where a, a, a scope is passed into the into the uh, stomach and then injecting medication directly into into the pancreas and, and the nerves themselves, or using an interventional radiology approach uh, where these medications can be delivered uh, via needle using X-ray guidance, and very occasionally we would do a similar approach uh, interoperatively. Uh, to try to achieve the the same end if somebody is ending up uh, going to the operating room for uh a related reason. And then much less uh, commonly I would say there are uh, pumps where we deliver, you know, fairly high doses of concentrated narcotics uh that can, that can be can be used and um, there are Complementary techniques again. Just referencing again, Dr. Schroff's, uh wonderful review. Uh, things like acupuncture can have some value uh, in terms of helping with pain uh, control, and uh, those complementary uh, approaches that we try to integrate. And occasionally, radiation is also used as a as a strategy for 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 pain control in 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 sort of limited uh, settings.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Um, Shroff: um, With increasing calorie intake to reduce weight loss, how do I balance what I eat when I have diabetes? What are food options that are helpful that won't hurt my blood sugar, uh, my blood sugar level?
3: Yeah, that is that is a great question, and absolutely a very fine line and a hard balance to strike. Uh, and again, you know, as I mentioned, I, I absolutely encourage uh, meeting with, if that's an option, meeting with a, a dietitian for that. Um, but yes, you know, there are there are calories that are more have a higher, as we call it, a glycemic index, or have more um, effect on blood sugar, and then there are some foods that. Hopefully, do not do the same, and, and are still kind of vital in terms of nutritional benefit. Uh, so, for instance, as I mentioned, you know, pro- protein-rich foods are really great. So, lean meats are usually not too hard on uh, your blood sugar control, but at the same time, have a very good uh, nutritional value. Um, in addition, you know. Just the other the the typical things, and I always tell my patients, you know, my recommendation for diet is oftentimes the same recommendation I would give myself. So a diet rich in lean meats and fruits and vegetables, and so you know, uh, legumes and and vegetables are great because they are protein rich and they're calorie um, well, they're not calorie rich, but they're they're filling, um, and so those things are fantastic. So you know, beans and and lentils as well as uh, vegetables. Um, and then, you know, in addition, there are, as I mentioned, some of those su- supplement drinks, you know, there are ones that are made to be diabetes-friendly. And so those are additional options that you can consider um, in 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 terms of calories that are still le- relatively low in, in glycemic index and hopefully will not affect your blood sugars in the same way.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we have a telephone question. Um, Norma?
0: I see your line is open. Anna, check your mute button. Your line is open. Yes, is it, did you say Anna? Yes. yes. Oh hi, yeah. Um I just wanted to say I've no I've heard a couple of times that um when the the pancreatic cancer is in the um central area and it's and um you know, major veins and arteries are being blocked that surgery is not an option. And actually, there are surgeons who are able to do that uh, surgery, and we are connected with one of them. And I was wondering if you could um, talk to that or your awareness of that the surgery is possible. Well,
1: thank you for that question. Um, so I'm going to ask Dr. O'Reilly just to address in a general way and um, just in terms of just um, if you ask your question. Yes yes
2: cer- certainly so so the, the, it's a very good question and a, and a common one that comes up on a day to day basis is what does it mean uh when there are arteries or blood vessels involved, and why can't a person can uh not be or be operated upon and I would say like like everything in life there's no absolutes here and and the details are kind of critical in terms of imaging uh getting a very clear understanding of it exactly what the extent of the tumor blood vessel relationship is. So for example, there are settings where where the tumor is touching, or we use the term abutting the blood vessels, but not surrounding and encasing the blood vessels, and that former setting is usually one where it is uh, for sure feasible to operate. The other extreme is where it's called locally advanced and inoperable where there's complete and typically we're talking here arterial uh, encasement, so major arteries such as the superior mesenteric or the, the celiac uh, axis uh, where they're encased with tumor. and. In that context, it's much less likely uh, that uh, an operation is going to be uh, feasible and the downstream consequences in, the, in that setting of surgery can be significant and, and not in, in the way that we want. Uh, then there's the group in, in between, which is a, a common scenario where it may be possible with, with treatment. That includes both chemotherapy and often in this particular setting uh utilizing radiation where it may be possible uh, to facilitate uh, a surgical removal but just going back to a point we 've emphasized a couple of times in the talk, uh you know the key key issue here is multidisciplinary evaluation by an experienced surgeon who knows the disease and knows the anatomy by uh, you know expert radiology and oncology and uh, we typically do not recommend, you know, uh, making isolated decisions. It's uh, it's that uh, I think complex interaction of all the uh, the disciplines involved that we think help to, to maximize the outcome for a given person, and help uh, define who is actually going to benefit from surgery and who. Uh, who, who wouldn't? But I would say this is not, it's not a straightforward uh, issue, and, and there's a lot of kind of nuances uh,
1: to the decision-making here. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and um, this will be our last question um, for Dr. Um, Shroff. Um, for a stage for metastatic patients, could surgery possibly be an option down the road after chemo?
3: Could I'm sorry, could surgery was that the question?
1: For a stage four metastatic patients, could surgery possibly be an option down the road after chemo after chemotherapy?
3: Yeah, that's you know, that is obviously the, the million dollar question and a very tough question. Uh I will say that the the general rule of thumb is that there's usually not a role for surgery uh, once the disease is metastatic and has spread to other organs, and that is primarily because of, of what we had been alluding to previously where, you know, if it, if it has spread to the liver or the the lungs, the presumption has to be that there may be other microscopic cells of pancreas cancer that are in the liver or in other organs um, and, you know, holding chemotherapy to, to go and to do an operation is usually all the window of time that is needed for those microscopic cells to actually grow and become masses in, in the liver or in other organs. Um, and so, by and large, once it has spread outside of the pancreas, there is not a role for surgery. Um, the reason I say by and large is, you know, as we have gotten better with therapy, there are one-off cases where these types of conversations are had and. You know, they have. Uh, we have patients who have a fantastic response to therapy and only had one lesion in the liver, and and you know that liver lesion is very small. And so, should we offer something, some more of a local therapy such as radiation or something like that? Those are conversations that are had on on a rare occasion um but again going back to what Dr. O'Reilly was saying i think that is absolutely a, a multidisciplinary conversation that should happen at a at a major cancer center where there are experienced uh, medical oncologists radiation doctors and surgeons who can really have a a, a frank conversation because while surgery often is is the um is the end, game, end goal, you know, going through a major surgery, we want to make sure that we are absolutely going to help this patient in the long run. And so that is a really important conversation um, to have with all of those uh, those physicians who are experts in the field to be able to, to have a frank conversation about whether or not this would be to that patient's benefit. But by and large, typically the answer is, is no role for surgery once metastatic.
1: Thank you. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've really been phenomenal um on this call and um so much so many really wonderful questions and um such great speakers to address them and also um all of you who've been listening. Um and we wanna thank all the people who did ask questions both on the phone and online. Um and um I know there are many more questions in queue, so I actually um, I said that we would th- we would let you know how to get your questions answered if you have further questions. We know you do have further questions. So we don't want to sidestep your healthcare team, so definitely you want to bring your questions to your healthcare team. Um, that's very important. And then in addition to that, um, we on today's program, um, we have partnered with um, some pancreatic um, cancer organizations, which I think would be really wonderful resources for you to uh, consider uh, contacting um certainly the um the pancreatic cancer action network has a lot of materials and information um and uh, also um they also have uh staffing on their hotline to answer your questions any medical questions you might have um and we also have uh, the Hershberg Foundation as well and um we also have the Garten Foundation so those are also wonderful resources as well um, and um, for those of you who have would like to access services from Cancer Care, whether it be to talk with one of our oncology social workers, access some practical help, join one of our support groups, you can simply call us at Cancer Care at um, 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at cancer, uh, cancercare.org. And, Actually, um, you'll at the end of this program, you will be getting an evaluation form, probably tomorrow, and the evaluation form will include all the resources we mentioned during the program today and then some, so that um, although you've probably been trying to take notes and things like that, you will get, um, after the program, all these various resources that we think could be of assistance to you um, that are credible resources. We want to be sure you're going to places that I think has been stressed throughout, that you want to go to places that are quite expert in um, and a tremendous uh, experience in um, helping you with questions on pancreatic cancer, including your healthcare team, of course. But just other organizations that will not charge you, that have publications that have been well um, reviewed by experts in the field and that you could actually access. Um, so, most importantly, as we are about to conclude the program today, I know that there are moments when many of you feel alone um, in dealing with pancreatic cancer or and Just and and no matter where you are, whether you're in a, in a surrounded by lots of people or in a in a, or in a rural area, um, that's a normal feeling to have. But I want you to know now that you're not alone in the sense that there's no resources for you. And so please do take advantage of the resources we make available to you. They're free and um, they may be able to help you with things that you um, that you need um, to make your the quality of your life better and to help you with questions and concerns you may have. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation.
3: This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.